0: Thank you, Jackie, and thanks, as we said, for everybody to sticking around to the end of the day to hear me talk about lactate and crystal balls. Now, ooh, wrong slide. There we go. So I'm assuming that because you're all here at a veterinary evidence-based conference, you're not a gre- you're not great believers in the crystal ball as a way of predicting the future, um, and hence the answer to this question is pretty obviously um, a yes. In that, even if they're not that good, they are better than a crystal ball. If there is anybody in the room who thinks crystal balls are fab at predicting the future, then uh, welcome to our community. And I hope you, I hope you enjoy this session. So, um, we're here to talk about blood lactate levels and particularly the veterinary evidence base and I'm aware that the conference as a whole is quite a diverse audience and I know I've certainly really enjoyed listening to some topics earlier today that are not topics that I would usually listen to um, as I usually attend emergency and critical care conferences and that actually sharing that diversity across a uh, Both our veterinary and nursing professions is a a fantastic thing to do. Um, Equally, it means when I was putting this lecture together, there was a bit of a dilemma for me between how much to sort of jump straight into the evidence base versus giving a bit of context for those of you that don't inhabit the clinical world that I live in, um, in terms of what is blood lactate and what am I talking about? So I decided to try and go for a little bit of a balance. And has that moved on? No, wrong one, sorry. Um, And so the first... Probably about 10 slides are really just a little bit of background as to what lactate is and why we think it could be useful as a prognostic indicator. Before I move on to the evidence that exists and how it has been used in the veterinary community and some of the challenges that I see with that, that I think might have a a wider perspective um, to play in other areas of um, specialty medicine, particularly communication of the evidence base into the practicing profession. So, for some of you in the room, I know some faces very well, and the first few slides are hopefully going to be um, very, very dull to you. For others of you who don't have an emergency critical care background, it'll hopefully just give you a sense of why this is an area that is an active area of clinical research, both in the human field, but also here, as we're talking today, in the veterinary field. So, shock is one of the commonest reasons that critically ill patients die, and the reason that we use lactate is it's a very easily measurable – we use – machines like this kind of very similar to glucometers for anyone that isn't familiar with them where we can really get pretty much immediate takes literally seconds to run from tiny drop of blood get a very quick analysis of what a patient's blood lactate level is and it provides really uh, an objective marker of shock and the question really is can that help us to prognosticate so why do we care? Uh, as a critical care specialist, uh, sh- shock and perfusion is one of the things I worry about the most. Um, so obviously perfusion is about moving oxygen around the body, delivering oxygen to the tissues. And um, even those of us who are maybe involved in more the epidemiological aspects of the veterinary world, I'm sure are all more than aware that if tissues don't have oxygen, mm-hmm. then uh, the organism isn't long for this world um and the reason that we care so much about this is cellular energy production so in aerobic conditions so when oxygen is being delivered to the tissues then we get 38 moles of atp produced per mole of glucose that gets to the tissue that's in the in the in the cytosol in anaerobic conditions when those tissues are poorly perfused and starved of oxygen that decreases to two so a dramatic drop in cellular energy production and that has really significant consequences for the cell um, in terms of really all of the cells functions and ultimately mean that the cell function will start to fail and as cells functions start to fail then ultimately the cell fails the organ fails and if you have enough organs fail the organism fails Uh, and that's obviously what we're trying to avoid or to be honest to to ensure that if it does happen it happens kind of at a time of our choosing if you like and with the active engagement of the owner that euthanasia is the right thing um, for this patient at this time and we talk um said lactate being a marker of shock we split shock into a number of categories of which volume loss whether that's blood loss or, or other fluid loss into uh, systems such as the gastrointestinal system um, are most important and we heard Kelly talk just before the tea break on the trauma registry and we do see a lot of trauma and lactate is used widely in trauma patients to help uh, assess the severity the severity of the shock. This was one of my favourite patients from years ago who'd had his face uh, ripped off by his sister, a little dog called Les. I um, mean, He did fine, but he presented with a significant amount of blood loss, very severe shock, and a very high lactate. So he's exactly the kind of patient we'd be talking about as to whether when we see patients like this and we're having uh, sometimes quite difficult conversations with owners about options for those for, for that animal and, and what the owners want for, for their pet, uh, can use of lactate? be something that helps us to guide those owners into making making the decision um, at what can be a very, very stressful time, and we will return to that. So typically... When we're teaching veterinary students and what we're using in the field day in, day out, and those of us if we don't have access to lactate, we're assessing shock on physical exam parameters. And that although those with experience can be pretty accurate, um, adding an objective marker that can be measured in the blood, a biomarker if you want a, a different word for it, can add to the adds to the depth of that exam we get and give us confidence, I guess, in our interpretation of the physical exam. I think for very experienced clinicians, and I I do have arguments with a number of my very good friends who are emergency critical care specialists, that really lactate is useless because actually if you're good at a physical exam, the lactate shouldn't tell you anything that you don't already know. And I can kind of see that point of view but you know, patients do always surprise us and we also have to recognise that a lot of the time we're not, we, certainly in the emergency community, it's not as if all animals are seen by an emergency critical care specialist with 30 years experience behind them. A lot of the time patients are being examined by less experienced vets, maybe that haven't had the benefit of the same training and mentoring that everybody else has, that, that some people have. And as such, lactate can provide a very useful supplement to the physical exam in terms of objective. Objectifying the stage of shock and the severity of shock that the patient is in. Remember the metabolic pathways? Oh, I wasn't moved on. Sorry. There we go. Remember the metabolic pathways? Um, well, this is just a summary there of what happens um, in the cells that, in aerobic conditions, we have. The glucose going to pyruvate, that's glycolysis, that's what produces um, your two millimoles. And then your pyruvate should shunt into the mitochondrion, um, go round the TCA cycle, and produce lots and lots of cellular energy. But in anaerobic conditions, that's what doesn't happen. And in order for glycolysis to continue and still this very small amount of cellular energy to be produced, the body has to do something with the pyruvate. So the pyruvate gets shunted to lactate, which then diffuses out of the cells into the circulation where we can pick it up and typically measure it in venous blood. And so as I said, it does provide a very objective measure of the amount of anaerobic respiration going on inside the cell and as such an objective marker of shock. the other really nice thing about lactate, and we'll touch on this as we come to think about how it can be used as a prognostic indicator, is it changes very quickly. And when we put treatment in place, if we have an animal in shock, we're going to want to treat it. We don't want it to be staying in shock for a prolonged period. Um, And as we do whatever treatment we use, it's often fluid therapy, but in some other forms of shock, maybe other drug therapy, then the lactate does get metabolized very quickly quickly. As perfusion's restored, that lactate is flushed predominantly to the liver, where the lactate is uh, regenerated into glucose via uh, a biochemical process known as the Cori cycle. This is a really rapid process. And as such, you can pretty much view lactate providing a real-time marker of perfusion status. And one of the questions I'm often asked when I'm discussing management of emergency critical care patients is, well, you've measured the lactate, you've done some blood work when the animal comes in you know when are you going to repeat that and you know my answer can be sometimes as soon as 15-20 minutes after the first one certainly very often within an hour because you will see changes uh, in these in parameters including the lactate that can be useful in telling you how your therapy is supporting or not supporting the patient in front of you so we do in in emergence critical care medicine we do often do serial measurements of these values and as i pretty much would view as a said as a real-time market of perfusion status and when we come on to look at the literature in terms of the prognostication value of lactate one of the areas of interest is really whether it's actually the change in lactate and how quickly it changes that's actually more useful and more helpful in helping us to talk to owners about prognosis than the actual initial value of the lactate when the patient comes into into our clinics there we go so, as we've said, lactate is an objective measure of the severity of shock. The changes in lactate uh, following treatment are something that we use on a case-by-case basis to help guide therapy. And a lactate within a reference range is uh, a therapeutic goal that we very often try and aim for in, um, in our critically ill patients. Just because we'll be talking about some numbers later uh, as we come on to talk uh, about the literature, then it might. Be, I thought it would be worth just putting in roughly what the reference range is. Reference ranges And the different levels that we would consider to be of concern in our clinical patients. And generally, a normal lactate value would be considered to be certainly less than two and a half and probably less than two or even one and a half. So really quite um, low levels. Animals with evidence of mildly poor perfusion, some people call it mild shock or compensated shock, will have lactate levels in the 2.5 to 5 range. Once you're getting above 5, you're moving into animals that are much more severely compromised. Um, Some people use the term moderate shock or you're moving towards decompensated shock. And certainly if you're getting values higher than 7, that would be of, of very severe concern. And we see in clinical patients, we will certainly see values up into the late teens in patients with shock. Um, those patients are, well, you certainly don't need, you don't even need a degree in veterinary medicine to know that those animals are profoundly compromised. Uh, but those animals. Um, potentially, if you're able to reverse that lactate, it's a marker of severity. But if that animal has just had a significant event happen to it very um, acutely, and it's with you very quickly, and you are able to reverse that lactate change very quickly, then it's not necessarily um, a marker of um, a marker of mortality. It's one of those things that I don't know if other specialty areas are the same as emergency critical care. But uh, we always have competitions for who's seen the highest number and managed to save the patient, and one of those little games that we can play that make going to work just that little bit more fun if it's not fun enough already so those are the kind of numbers that we're talking talking about Um, most of from here on in i'm pretty much going to talk on dogs cats um I'm much less of a cat person, so it kind of makes me feel comfortable talking about dogs. But um, cats just are a bit more of a challenge, and there's much less published info available. Um, The literature on prognostication is pretty much all related to dogs and canine conditions. There's a little bit of literature available in cats um, on reference ranges and looking at uh, the levels of lactate in cats and prognosis in um, septic peritonitis. But um, there's much less of it, and I think generally the lactate is much more of an add-on to the paper rather than the focus of the literature. So we probably won't say very much more about cats from here on in, but just for those of you in the room who are clinically oriented, I guess my clinical impression is that, of course, it doesn't behave exactly as dogs do, whereas dogs in shock, you get a fairly linear increase in lactate. Cats, it seems to stay stay low in surprisingly sick animals and then suddenly jumps up to a moderate level. Uh, but actually, those animals, those cats that have lactate elevations to the four to six should be the kind of moderate range in dogs. I think, generally, my impression is a much more severely compromised. Now, of course, that is a clinical anecdote, um, and I think it would be quite hard to actually document that. Cats are a particularly difficult group of patients to work with, especially in terms of shock, where their their biological behaviour in shock is quite different to, to dogs. So... As we move on to thinking about the literature so far, what I've presented is the fact that lactate is something that we can measure in, in venous blood, so very easily obtain blood samples. That gives us a good sense of the presence of shock and the severity of shock and the amount of anaerobic respiration going on globally in that patient. Well, of course, it's, it's not quite that simple. And one of the things that can confound some of the clinical studies is, of course, that in biology, nothing ever works quite as you would like it to and of course lactate doesn't just change with global hypoperfusion which is what I've been talking about so far. So lactate could also potentially increase in other areas of um, other situations where there is an absolute or relative tissue hypoxia and animals that are unable to get oxygen from their alveoli actually into their into their bloodstream to circulate to the tissues, animals that have really low... It has to be very anaemic animals. We're talking about very low PCVs. But again, if the oxygen delivery is compromised by very severe anaemia, that could be a cause of a hyperlactatemia. And... In terms of relative tissue hypoxia, excessive muscle activity. Um, So if the animal is twitching or trembling while the blood sample is being taken, if you think about if you're taking a cephalic blood sample and the animal's doing that and you're trying to occlude the vessel to get the sample, then there may be a localized lactate buildup in that part of the limb that you are then detecting that isn't reflective of globalized hypoperfusion. Also, animals that are immediately post seizure—that's some of the highest lactates I've ever seen—have been in animals that have literally just finished seizuring, where you get a blood sample, and you can get lactates up to 30. Uh, And again, that's not reflective of poor perfusion in those animals, but is reflective of the fact that for that short period while they're seizuring, their tissue muscle um, uh, use is that much higher than the delivery. But as soon as they stop seizuring, again, it's that real-time marker. Literally within 10-15 minutes, it will be back. down to normal once the seizure has stopped. But all of those things can affect or could be uh, confounding factors when we're thinking about how we interpret the literature. And then even more confusingly, there's also this type B lactic acidosis, which is where lactate is produced in the body when there is no tissue hypoxia. So that's generally because of changes in the way the cell's metabolic apparatus is working. So in type B1, it's because there's some other process that is causing that glycolysis uh, progression into the TCA cycle to go slightly awry. Things like sepsis, some of the uh, severe endocrine disease is neoplasia um, B2 where there are um, where we have drugs that can impact on that, that how that cellular uh, engine is working and then B3 which I'm, I'm not sure and there may be people in the room who can correct me I'm not sure it's ever been documented in small animal patients but certainly in humans there are inborn errors of metabolism that uh, can mean that people just produce lactate um, because of uh, their cells metabolic machinery is not quite working in, in the normal way so these are the clinical red herrings, and these are the things that could impact on, on our ability to interpret the literature. So lactate will be high, but not represent shock. In Sometimes it's pretty obvious, um, things like uh, post-exercise or recent seizures, and it's not going to be confused with some of the clinical conditions we're talking about. But some of the other ones, particularly sepsis and endocrine disease, could be confused with some of the uh, situations we're talking about where we're trying to use lactate to prognosticate. So, in clinical practice, and I do a lot of teaching of of emergency vets up and down the country, both within the business I work for, but also uh, more generally at conferences and other CPD events, and generally my advice is that um, we should be measuring lactate in critically ill patients, that ideally we should be doing it um, serially, as we said, that lactate clearance can be um, potentially just as important as the actual value, and that it is an important tool that is um, very useful for anybody who is seeing emergency patients to have available. And things like the kind of advice that we look at um, treating shock and measuring the lactate both before and after a fluid bolus treatment, and if we have patients... Uh, emergency patients that we think require general anesthesia as part of their management to try and normalize the lactates and and effectively document that we have got rid of, for want of a better word, the shock, before subjecting them to anesthesia and all the drugs and the inevitable consequences of those drugs um, is a valuable thing to have done. Um, We would also use it, and this is particularly when we're working with um, less experienced colleagues, to um, help help people um, really develop that sense of judgment I mean I was very lucky when I was training as an emergency vet I was always working with people who were more experienced than me so I would assess an animal for shock and get someone who was way more experienced than me to look over my shoulder and go oh yeah I agree with you or oh no I think you've completely misinterpreted that pulse quality and that's largely how I learned now a lot of veterinary surgeons in practice and here especially with the evidence-based medicine we're talking about how we can make sure that this reaches all sections of our veterinary community and there's a high proportion of emergency vets that are, are not going to be able to have the luxury of being trained in that environment and are going to be able to have some training and mentoring but are going to be doing a lot of learning on the job and in that situation having a lactate to help you um, assess um, the, uh, uh, give you confidence in your clinical exam is also a, a valuable a valuable thing to do. So coming on then to I think undoubtedly we are using this as a clinical tool. I would say pretty much all emergency-only practices, both in the UK and abroad, will be using this and have been using lactate probably for the last 20 years. Um, I think I've been a vet 18 years now, and it was being used just as I was starting. I have never practiced without lactate. There we go. That's probably an embarrassing thing to say. Um, And so we are using it as a clinical tool day in, day out. But actually, how can it help us? How can we use the evidence base to try and help us improve our care? And particularly for me, it's about how we can try and use it to help us work with our owners to make the best decisions for the patients that come through our doors. And it's long been recognised that lactate it can have a prognostic prognostic implications. And this study was the landmark study, really, from 1970, so, so it's older than me, um, looking at evaluation of lactate in human patients with acute circulatory failure. And you can see you probably wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't win any prizes for constructing your axes like this these days. But here we have the patients who died, and you can see the lactate's going up really high. The patients that survived all had lactates less than around six. So there is obviously some overlap, uh, but this was really the first study in the landmark study. If you go to the textbooks, it's always the one quoted as being um, the the kind of the, the paper that started off people thinking of lactate as a prognostic indicator. Human medicine's advanced dramatically since then, and we've talked a lot today about the volumes of literature and, and how we can best manage that. And certainly in the human medicine side now, they are much more, um, getting groups of people together to look at certain um, conditions and coming up with consensus guidelines because it's recognized that your average practicing emergency physician in a human hospital simply can't keep up with the volume of literature and there need to be uh, dedicated teams who are looking at reviewing that literature and putting it into a framework that can then be applied in practice because it's just not possible for every single physician to read every single paper and interpret it properly. And one of these, this was just a recent example the surviving sepsis campaign is a very uh, well-known publicly available set of guidelines in the human medicine world and as you can see here it touches on the fact that the prognostic value of lactate has been well established in septic shock that paper one guess what it's that violin a paper from 1970 uh, but also um, particularly they've moved on to look at the changes in lactate and the prognostic use there and again, as I said, as I touched on before, they now tend to use lactate and normalising lactate as being one of their goals um, in their care bundles. Now, human medicine is obviously different from veterinary medicine in that if a human has a poor prognosis, um, we would well we would assume that they don't go to the go to the cupboard and pull out some ethyl. But equally, um, you know, if you talk to human critical care physicians, there is a lot of withdrawal of care, or and other other things that are analogous. Um, I hate to say this in public, but that are are mean that that patient, that the level of intervention with the patient may be modified based on that human doctor's interpretation of what the prognosis is, um, and that's touched on in these in these in these um, guidelines as well. So for us. It's even more important. I don't know, there's a number of emergency clinicians in the room, but whoops! I think everybody will recognize the phrase, I'll find the money if my dog will live. Does that have a familiar phrase to people? There's a few people smiling out there. When we're dealing with emergency patients, we have distressed owners at an acutely stressful time being asked to make um, decisions that are very emotionally but also financially challenging for them and we have a really important role in helping guide them to the right decision for them and their pet at the time and sometimes that is going to be euthanasia sometimes it is going to be progressing with a likely expensive and quite emotionally involved period of care. And so this is where lactate does potentially have a really important use for us. And there have been a number of studies uh, put out, which I'll I'll touch on. Um, Most of them are synced so far. We're very unlike the human field, where they can pull on multiple studies uh, looking at the same really the same question from slightly different angles and merge the data and things like systematic reviews and meta-analyses are all part of that. Veterinary medicine, as you all know, is is way before that. And generally, we're looking here at uh, single papers, looking at single populations. But lactate has been reported to be prognostic in all of these uh, different conditions in dogs we we'll just look at a couple of those papers in more detail. This, I, I personally think, was one of the, the better ones. Um, it was well-described, well-written. It was relatively... Um, uh, to be honest, when I'm reading papers, I like them to be quite focused rather than waffly, um, and I think this paper really fulfilled that. It's from 2004 and looked at the prognostic value of lactate in canine babesiosis. The other thing I really liked about it is it's not a bad size for a veterinary presentation, for a veterinary study rather, and one of the things I liked about it was that... The of their non-survivors only two of them were euthanized and they gave quite a lot of clinical detail about those two patients that were euthanized and to be honest they were going to die (laughs) I think it would have been one of those situations where you were racing to get the euthatel before the patient died, the the clinical description of those patients was uh, really hugely compromised so that gives me, again we talked I know there's been some talk today about how euthanasia and, and our ability to perform euthanasia can bias prognostic studies but that was one of the things I liked about this I felt that it was probably less probably less biased than some and they had a number of measurements that were associated with mortality including an admission lactate over five but also they looked at uh, how that lactate changed over time and especially if it didn't come down it was associated with a worse prognosis um, another one that I just want to touch on, partly because it, it, um, it, it helps us look at, um, it helps us interpret some of the data that I'm going to show later, was this one looking at uh, lactate concentration in dogs with IMHA. Again, a relatively large study for veterinary, 173 cases, although they had a much higher euthanasia rate. Um, so if they animals that died, the majority were euthanized. And they um, looked, they said admission lactate was associated with a poor outcome, but um, as a predictive for outcome it was less than optimal which I everyone who knows me will know that is language that I, I like to use a lot so suboptimal use here and they did do ROC analysis they chose a cutoff of 4.4 millimoles per litre and of, for the lac, an admission lactate of 4.4 millimoles per litre and said that correctly predicted outcome 73% of the time, sensitivity was 60, specificity was 77% and they said that as a predictor for outcome was less than optimal which I have to say I would agree with I think those are very compromising or compromise you're getting the compromise between sensitivity and specificity there The other thing this paper did was kind of introduce the concept of time, which is defined as the time during which the lactate is greater than two, and as we said, it's been shown potentially to be better prognostic indicator in several human studies. They looked at it, it wasn't a prime goal of this study, but they looked at it in 85 dogs and did find um, a difference there and suggested it was useful for further research, but they did recognise that they couldn't really draw firm conclusions because they hadn't had a protocol in place for when those subsequent lactates were taken. And when they were taken in reference to treatments such as blood transfusion, which would be expected to help improve the lactate. Um, just to touch on before we move on to the final section, the other area that we, um, I think the veterinary community is getting its act together um, and particularly I'm very proud of the emergency and critical care community that with um, things like the trauma registry and uh, recover and also some of our illness severity scores, I think there's a lot of activity to try and work collaboratively to try and support our patients. But the APPLE score is one of the, the, the probably the most upset and the one that's being used most and is being gradually adopted as the standardized score. It's an illness severity score, uh, a 10 and 5 point scale for stratifying disease in critically ill patients. Um, although I think they raise, the authors of this study do raise a very, very valid concern that uh, a high APPLE score may be used inappropriately as a tool to direct euthanasia decisions. And as we talk about the GDV literature, which I'm going to come on to in a minute, I think that is something that we as a veterinary community have to be very, very aware of, uh, that when we start publishing numbers especially if we publish them in the abstracts of the paper, which is what most of the practicing community have access to, we have to be very careful about what we write so that we don't inadvertently uh, mean that people are seizing on something and using it to direct decisions where it's not really that the data doesn't really support that. And so moving on to the final section, which is looking specifically at the GDV literature. So this is a lovely GDV. Some of you in the room will be filled with joy seeing that at the thought of a patient save. Some of you would probably be filled with horror at the thought that uh, that this might have to be an animal that you had to deal with. Um, but the GDV literature, um, I think I chose to focus on a little bit more detail and we'll spend the rest of the, the talk. I think I've got time. Yep. The, we'll spend the rest of the talk looking at because it's the area it was really the first paper to come out where a cutoff was proposed uh, where lactate was used as a, was, was advocated for use as a prognostic indicator and it's also one where there is now a slightly greater depth of literature I'm talking here about four papers but considering the others the Babesia the IMHA and so on where there's really only a single paper on each of those disease processes this GDVs are an emergency condition where we have a little bit more to work with So again, uh, we'll skip through these slides very quickly, but GDV, I'm sure all of you know this, life-threatening condition, but actually the cause of death is shock, and the urgent surgery following stabilisation is going to be required if the patient is to survive. They typically present acutely and are a great example of where owners are put in a position of having to make a very difficult decision in a very short space of time. In terms of the mortality, the published mortality rates in referral institutes, again, we've touched on this issue several times today about the volume of literature coming from referral institutes rather than primary practice and how a number of us are working to try and change that. But the mortality rate in referral institutes ranges from 10 to 33% in published studies. Now, data from our organisation that provides um, emergency care across the UK, um, we see upwards of 150,000 emergency cases a year. we are starting to interrogate our data a lot more, and we know that, um, assuming that the cases we see are representative of the emergency caseload in the UK, which I think is probably a, it's, it's open to challenge, as all assumptions are, but I think a, a reasonable assumption, then GDVs represent 0.64% of the emergency care caseload. And the mortality rate we we have in our caseload is much higher at 50%, roughly 50%. But these are pretty much all euthanized prior to surgery. So this suggests that the owners come in, the diagnosis is not usually a challenging diagnosis, it's being made, but that the owners after discussion are deciding to put their pet to sleep rather than go for the surgery that will uh, have the chance of returning their pet to them in health. Um, uh, Having said that, the mortality rate for our patients in the primary care caseload that do undergo surgery is comparable to the figure for referral institutes. And I think our mortality rate for surgery patients was around 20%. So for those that do go to surgery, the outcome is, is not dissimilar to other institutions. The other thing that I'll touch on is a lot of the papers talk about gastric necrosis and how lactate is a predictor of gastric necrosis, which is being used almost as a surrogate for mortality, in that we know that a proportion of patients where they twist their stomach will develop necrosis of the stomach, and this is one, it's not quite necrosis Um, but this would be one that looks a a little bit dodgy and how you'd you'd want to watch and wait for a bit before deciding what to do. Uh, But those patients, we know that gastric necrosis, if it is present, is associated with a poorer prognosis, although patients with gastric necrosis can still survive. So this was the first paper that came out and I kind of, um, I feel very aligned to this paper. I think at one point in my life I could probably recite nearly the whole paper because it came out just as I started my internship in the States where we saw a lot of GDVs and, and Des Hughes was one of my mentors. So I probably could literally recite this paper at one point in my life and it was the first paper it came out. There was another paper at about the same time looking at a general veterinary ICU population showing that uh, lactate was associated with a higher mortality but this This was the much more specific paper and if i can just actually probably going on to the next well no i'll make one point here here they do say and i'm sorry this probably looks slightly blurry um they do say that preoperative lactate is a good predictor of gastric necrosis and outcome and yet if you look here the dogs with gastric necrosis oh no hang on where's my sensitive there we go The sensitivity and specificity were 88 and 61 so there's a real difference there between that previous IMHA paper with you know ballpark similar sensitivity and specificities for the cutoff they chose saying it's a suboptimal indicator and this paper with that those that that quoted sensitivity and specificity saying it's a good indicator and I think again that's where I guess one of the things I wanted to open to discussion really is the power of the language we use to change the behaviour in the practising veterinary community and how we have a great responsibility to use that, that, those of us publishing, to use that language carefully. So in the veterinary community, the 6, 6 millimole per liter cutoff that they chose uh, kind of almost entered into veterinary myth. And um, I, as I said, I've, I've lectured widely over the last 18 years and it's not uncommon for it to be trotted out glibly as, oh, it's a GDV, it's got a lactate of 6, we should be recommending euthanasia. That's not what the paper said at all. It did say that 6 was a good predictor, but it didn't say that patients with a, a lactate of greater than six should be euthanized. And yet, that is a number that uh, a reasonable proportion and very reasonably of the practicing community seized on. And it, it doesn't surprise me. We're dealing with very distressed owners who we want to be able to guide with very clear information. Uh, and when we have clear numbers like that, it's very easy to seize on that as being a good tool to support our communication. So, as I said, there, here, we say 99% of dogs with lactate less than 6 survived, 58% of dogs with a lactate greater than 6 did not survive, but that means that 42% did. Um, so I think there's, that that kind of has got lot, that got a little bit lost as this paper was was put out more widely into our community. And I think it was a real concern amongst many in the veterinary critical care community as to how many owners may have been dissuaded from surgery on the basis that their dogs with a lactate higher than six um, had um, sorry dogs with a GDB had also had a lactate higher than six. I think the other thing is that I do, I don't know. The answer this question how that is now impacting on gdv studies um, especially those done in the primary practicing community where we are measuring lactate and where you know with the best one in the world we can't um, that the conversations that go on between the primary veterinary between the primary vet caring for animal and the owner uh, take place uh, are private conversations in the confines of a room and we all know how powerful our word can be in that situation Other people, interestingly, remember the 6.6 cut-off, uh, which was actually the median level for those dogs that died, Um, and I can't actually remember what the median was for those that didn't, but it was a a lot lower than that. So that then went on, and it went. It was quiet for a long time. So that paper was published in 1999, and really throughout the 2000s, that was the one that was cited. And I think it's a really good paper, although I guess with hindsight, use of the word good in the conclusions I would maybe uh, uh, challenge. And then this paper came out. This was paper from a very large, very well-established emergency and critical care sp- or Emergency critical care-led, specialty, multi-specialty hospital in the states, and it was again looking at that evaluation of plasma lactate as a predictor of gastric necrosis. It specifically mentions the six millimole per litre cutoff as a rationale for challenge um, in, whoops, sorry, um, in, in the introduction. Um, and the authors specifically in the introduction state the authors contend that in our hospital an initial lactate in dogs presenting with GDV doesn't predict the presence of gastric necrosis nor overall survival and again it's highlighted in the conclusions and again we have to remember not everybody a lot of the a lot of us, including me actually a lot of the time, only have access to abstracts. If you don't work in an academic situation, it can be quite hard to get access to the full papers quickly. And in a busy clinic, it can be very hard to read them. So this paper seems to present conflicting evidence to the longstanding paper um, newspaper that everyone had used, uh, used for a long time. There've been a couple of other papers. So there was a paper by Zacker came out at about the same time. They used a cutoff of nine uh, and they were looking more specifically at changes in lactate over time. I'll touch a bit more on their results later. And then there was another paper from the same institution as the original DePap paper came from. Uh, but again, this time, uh, look using a cutoff of 7.4 millimoles per litre. So essentially, we have four different papers looking at the prognostic utility of lactate in uh, in patients with GDV, which, at a superficial read, could all sound like they were saying really quite different things. If you actually look at the patients, though, the patient groups actually aren't that different. So you can see they're all reasonable-sized studies. They all have pretty similar survivals. The Two latest latest studies have lower levels of gastric necrosis. It's interesting to speculate why that might be the case, whether owners owners or the referring veterinary community are recognising these patients and getting them to a referral institute sooner. I don't, don't quite know. There was no real answer to that in the studies. Um, And again, the survival with necrosis, the two studies out of the University of Pennsylvania had a much higher survival with necrosis than the other two studies. Equally, if an animal's got gastric necrosis and it doesn't survive, it's usually because it's euthanized on the table. So that does suggest that there may be differences in how ambitious the surgeons are at different institutions and potentially the surgical culture within those institutions. But overall, not that different. If you actually look at the lactate values, again, this takes out the Zacher paper because they didn't report the lactate values in quite the same way. But again, the initial lactate actually isn't that different. Um, And the proportions that had an initial lactate. So the patient populations really aren't hugely different. But what is different is how the authors chose to kind of cut and slice the data and what cut-offs they looked at uh, and how they prioritized sensitivity and specificity when they were looking at what cut-off they would, they would recommend. And so here you can see the cut original cut-off chosen, we said that it's kind of in the veterinary Myth, myth world if you like was six zaka looked at a much higher one green looked at a much lower one but really prioritized specificity in terms of survival which kind of makes sense um, you know you want to be pretty um you know a low false positive rate makes sense for survival there but um that might be why their number's a bit different uh, and again the santoro beer study really pretty similar to the to the pap study but used a different cutoff there and then, in terms of the necrosis cutoffs, see that the one published by the Green Paper, which was the one that almost directly challenged the original study, they actually chose a cutoff of 2.9 as their predictor for gastric necrosis. But look at how they've prioritized, how they've maximized their sensitivity there at the expense of specificity. So, They they chose, you know, the the authors of these papers can choose how to cut and slice that data. They chose that number to maximize their sensitivity. And that has a cost in that a greater number, they had a greater number of false positives. And in fact, only 28% of their dogs above the cutoff point actually did have necrosis. Not very many below had it, (laughs) or one I think, but um, a, a reasonable proportion above didn't. So the cutoff choice is really, really important for this literature. And we've only got four papers uh, on this, which, as I said, at a superficial read, may say slightly different things. But actually, if you probably combined all the data, you'd probably come up with really quite similar conclusions, I would suspect. So the original study chose, uh, the, the original cutoff was chosen purposefully to optimize specificity just the Zacher and Santoro was more of a balance, and the green paper reported values that maximised sensitivity for necrosis and specificity of survival. And actually, it does. Let, beg the question as to whether we should be looking at two different cutoffs for use in clinical for recommendations in clinical practice so a low one below and if the dog's lactate is below that we can say pretty confidently it will survive and a higher cutoff where we can say pretty confidently that there's a reasonable chance your dog will have necrosis and thus have a higher rate of likelihood of complications and potentially expense but then there's going to be a group of dogs that lie in between where you know we're not really helping um, decide helping decision making with those dogs. Um, I said I'd just touch briefly, I'm getting towards the end now, I said I'd just touched briefly on the Zaka paper, and it was one that said that more focused on the changes in lactate and found that survival was significantly lower. Again, as you'd expect, uh, dogs that had a, a higher final lactate, a, a smaller absolute or percentage change in their lactate following stabilisation with fluids. So, considering lactate in serial Considering lactate and GDV, where do we go from here? Well, I think it's probably fair to say that we can use both the initial and particularly serial lactate to guide decision making, but we do need to be uh, appropriately cautious with our wording. I think generally if the lactate is is low, um, so maybe very mildly elevated, but certainly not even into the moderate range, then it's reasonable to tell owners that survival is likely. If the initial lactate is over 6, it does make gastric necrosis and potentially higher expense more likely. But the really important thing that I think the veterinary community has has fallen foul of, or or some members have there, is that even with necrosis, two-thirds of those dogs can can and do survive. Having said that, due to the overlap between the groups, um, you really have to go and have a peek before you can make any firm decisions or recommendations. So what are the challenges in the veterinary community? Well, the volume of information is growing and can initial reading be conflicting and I, I was actually just reflecting that I read each of those papers as they came out um, I went back and looked at them last night uh, and it literally I was sat at my kitchen table from 9pm until midnight reading through them um, to make sure that I had actually read them properly and with an appropriate level of focus to remind myself You know, realistically that's four papers about 0.64% of the emergency caseload and it's taken me three or four hours to really go through the detail and I think we really need to be very cognizant of that we also need to be aware that that when we're practicing when we're talking to owners we need to take complex concepts and make them accessible to distressed owners and that's where finding a single number that we can hang on to is something that is very attractive um, for helping with owner communication, but I think CAN has the potential also to be very dangerous. And I guess that's where I would hope as um, part of the EBVM community to have a role to play in supporting how we interpret that data and how we can use it to communicate well to um, allow us to help pets and their owners. So, in summary, lactate isn't a crystal ball, uh, but the information it provides can be helpful in guiding owners, but alongside that, we do need to be very aware of ensuring the primary literature is presented and interpreted in a way that um, is accessible and user-friendly for the wider audience of practicing clinicians, and that is only going to get more challenging as the data we have available grows. So, thank you for listening. I hope that found that interesting. And um, I'm happy to take questions now or in the bar.